Light beer, dark money. Agree on something. Politics, culture, and the intersection of faith, freedom, and free enterprise. And now, live from the Star Worldwide Network Studios, here are your hosts, Light Beer, Chris Clements, and Dark Money, Sean Noble. Welcome back to another episode of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. Chris Clements is out sick today. We are a couple days before Thanksgiving, so you're probably listening to this over the Thanksgiving holiday. Happy Thanksgiving. We have as our guest today the, the one and only Rich Tao, who has been our go-to for understanding the swing voter. We've been talking to Rich now uh, for a couple of years. He's been at this for about three years. And uh, Rich, you were just th- welcome back, by the way. Thanks and for thank having me back. I Thanks. appreciate it. Uh, we will always have you back. <laughs> but especially interesting, you were just recently uh, doing an Arizona focus group. Uh, and that was 11 voters who had voted for Trump in 2016 and then voted for Biden 2020. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you learned, because the highlights I've seen are wow. That's all I can say is wow. <laughs> well, Give us the you know, so, <laughs> yeah, Sean, well, Sean, it's great to be back. And I'm sorry, Chris isn't feeling well. Uh, but uh, let me sort of dive in a little bit on this. This is a, these were a fascinating focus group. It was two groups in total, one group of six, the other group of five. Uh, we did these groups uh, actually turned out to be on election night. So it was November okay. 7th. So it's a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, the, the, well, let me start with where, I, where I've started with you in the past, honestly, which is that these folks consistently, not just in Arizona, but all the other swing states as well, and we do Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Michigan, go down the list. They don't want Trump and they don't want Biden. Yeah. It's almost like a running joke with them. So you've seen it in the polling, but in this group, it's an intensity that is just remarkable. In fact, I'll even ask a question in the focus group. How many of you would like Trump and Biden not to run next year and have someone from the next generation run in their place or something to that effect? And when I'm halfway through the sentence, when I say don't want Trump and Biden to run next year, the fingers go up to to say they agree before I've even finished the rest of the sentence. And it's everybody. Yeah, it's everybody. It's absolutely everybody. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So to give you a little lay of the land in terms of the presidential race. If you force them to choose between Biden and Trump, eight will take Biden, three will take Trump. And to give you a sense of how that fits compared to, uh, to the last seven months, I've just done a calculation of just the last seven months across multiple states. We had 81 people who in, in total uh, who fit that category. And of the 81, 15 would take Trump back. Oh, wow. It's interesting so, that, that that's a very interesting point because it does go to the fact because there's a lot of people who uh, and I'm frankly, I, I probably would put myself in this camp that I look at Biden. I look at the age. I look at the the cognitive decline and I just think I just don't know how this guy can win even against Trump because, you know, there is. There is a base of support that Trump has. There's also a base of support that the, the president has. But it's that middle 
that matters. And I have been inclined to think that they would dismiss Biden to go back to Trump because of Biden's age. But what you're saying is that it's really just the opposite, that the vast majority stick with Biden and don't embrace Trump at this point. Yeah. So for some context, when we were doing these groups before the 2020 election, I had Obama to Trump voters. Mm -hmm. And what I found was roughly three quarters of those people plan to stick with Trump as opposed to flipping to Biden. So this is very similar. There's a Uh, little bit more, a little higher percentage who would stick with Biden as opposed to jumping back to a Republican. But having jumped away from Trump, it's just a it's a big bridge to jump back to him, having abandoned him. Right. But that said, please, let me leave. Make it, I want to leave anybody with the impression that these people are looking forward to voting for <laughs> Joe Biden. This, this is I, I, I've been struggling with analogies. This is like giving someone the choice between drinking wheatgrass juice and castor oil. <laughs> this, and, and you're thirsty and you, you need to drink something. Right. And, and which leads me to my next point is that there's someone named Robert F. Candy Jr. who for a number of these people tastes like Coca-Cola. Interesting. And so when I gave them a three-way choice, rather than having eight to three Biden to Trump, it became five for Biden, zero for Trump, and six for Kennedy. Oh, wow. So these people, it's any port in a storm, Sean. Yeah. Six of them would bail from one of the two major candidates and would take Kennedy knowing very little about him but just wanting someone younger. And he's not that much younger. I think he's 69, Um, but he's a familiar name and they just want another choice. That is fascinating. And, and, and it's, and, you know, to be clear, we're talking about swing voters. So this is, you know, this isn't saying, Oh, you know, Trump is going to collapse. This is saying that RFK being in the race as an independent is going to have some impact. And it's, it's probably hard to tell, given that he took three away from each to get to that six, right? But so he's obviously hurting Biden, but he's obviously hurting Trump as well. I mean, it's, it's basically the question is going to be ultimately if he's, if he's on the ballot in some of these critical states, because he may not get on the ballot in every state, but he doesn't need to. As long as he's on the ballot in some of the critical states, he can have some impact on the outcome. Then it really could be, a base game for the two for Biden and for Trump to, to to whoever gets their base out better can withstand whatever swing away from them in the middle goes to J, RFK Jr. Would you say that's probably accurate? I think that's accurate. One. The other thing I would say is that national polling. So not my little group of 11 people here, but you look at national numbers seems to suggest that. Uh, RFK Jr. would pull more people away from Biden than he would from Trump. Interesting. Uh, um, and you'll know whether he's pulling more votes away from Trump than Biden because you'll, that'll be the moment that Trump starts to go after him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and that means his pollsters have told him that he's a threat. And and firstly, if he sees that he's really helping him, him Trump, and hurting Biden, they'll do all kinds of things, I imagine, to prop him up. And you saw that at least early on with Fox News giving yeah. a lot of positive coverage to Robert Kennedy Jr. That's right. So, you know, I th- there's a, it's an interesting game here. You also have Jill Stein in the race, and she can play a pivotal role at the margins, especially yes. in, 
in really tight states like yours and like mine. And for your listeners, I'm in Pennsylvania, so I'm in another swing state. Uh, and you have Cornell West, who at the margins can make a difference in some of these races. And, you know, I, I was thinking, knowing I was going to be talking to you, I kept thinking to myself, who would I rather be at this point? Would I rather be Trump or I'd rather be Biden? And I thought, well, you know, it's a pretty bad choice. If you're Biden, you're behind to the polls. And if you're Trump, you're going to be suffering through a whole year of trials where you could end up in jail. Right. So, like, which is a great choice. I mean, they both stink, honestly. Uh, but from an electoral perspective, all things being as equal as they can be, I, you know, I'd give the edge to Trump at this point because uh, Biden has too many other entities siphoning votes away from him. And Trump doesn't have that yet. Right. Now, and, it, and it could be, I mean, we don't know, there could be some very conservative, let's say socially conservative person who decides to challenge Trump and siphon votes away from him. Could happen on nobody, anybody out there who's planning to do it, but that person could be there who runs so far to the right that no person who would normally vote for Biden would ever consider that person, but would be a net loser of votes for Trump. So I don't know. Uh, it, it's an interesting question, but I, I think the story next year, at least as it's lining up now, it looks like these third party candidates are going to be of outsized importance. No question. And and more so, the, the, the most outsized influence, I think, since Ross Perot ran and, and prevented George H.W. George Bush from winning re-election. Um, well, you and I could debate that. I mean, some, some would say that, that Ralph Nader had a small role in 2000, uh, yeah. you know, th through the election to bore Bush over Gore. Sure. Um, you know, Jill Stein had an had an impact on Hillary Clinton's vote. Um, so, that, I mean, again, just to remind your listeners, it was 78,000 votes in three states that gave the presidency to Trump out of 129 million cast. Right. Right. Uh, you know, it was 44,000 votes in, in three states in 2020 out of 155 million cast, 0. 0.03, 0.0003%, <laughs> right, like right. minuscule fraction of well, a percent. Yeah, I mean, it's what, what my point was is that Perot pulled from a raw numbers standpoint, the largest yes. we'd ever seen of a third party, it, way more than what Jill Stein did. But the, the impact that Jill Stein and Ralph Nader, Ralph Nader in 2000, uh, and then Jill Stein in 2016. I mean, here in Arizona, Jill Stein pulled way more votes than what Hillary lost by here in Arizona. So that that clearly had impact. Um, and it, it, you know, yeah. so so here, as we, I, I mean, we're going to see chaos. I, I assume because not only do we have RFK Jr. who is raising real money, getting real numbers in the polling. Uh, you have Jill Stein running on the Green Party slate again, uh, which will have impact, has before. Cornell West, who, I mean, he'll he'll draw people that Jill Stein wouldn't, I guess. It's it's I mean, sure. you know, he's he's a well known on the hard left. Um, I think of all the candidates, he's the one who's going to potentially attract the essentially what I'll call the pro Hamas vote. Because he has been really hard uh, on the anti-Israel position, um, and which we can get to that because I think that's that whole thing is is rife with with creating chaos. Um, and then you've got no labels, and we don't know. Yep. I mean, Mansions now out there saying, "Hey, I'm going to talk to I'm going to 
go across America, you know, I don't, don't know that I'm done. So, you know, No Labels clearly wants Mansion to be on the ticket. The question is, who do they get to go with him? And, you know, what impact does that have? Does that pull from Trump? Does it pull from Biden? We don't know yet. Uh, but, man, talk about what a crazy year we're in for. Yeah, no, it's a crazy year. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I should also remind your, your listeners that you know, we've had former presidents run for president before. And in the case of Grover Cleveland, won a second term after right. losing the prior election. So that's happened. We had Teddy Roosevelt run in 1912, and he came in second. The incumbent right. president came in third. Right, came in second as a third party candidate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you know, which, but 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 that, but that's instructive, right? Because he split mm. with Taft the Republican vote, yep. and Wilson won the presidency. Right. So um, that's a real lesson because this, I mean, Sean, as you know, this is all about arithmetic. You can't have more than a hundred percent. Right. So there's only a certain percent you can divide up of the electorate that's going to vote left leaning and a certain percent is going to be right leaning. And right now, Trump doesn't have people siphoning off votes from him. And Biden has a lot of people siphoning off votes. And just one other point on Cornell West. You've seen the numbers. African-American voters are not enthusiastic about Biden. Right. And a number of them, I, I'm guessing, already plan to stay home or vote for Trump, perhaps, or now Cornell West. Yep. So. Or Jill Stein or Robert Kennedy Jr. I mean, I had an African-American woman in my Arizona group who said that Robert Kennedy Jr. reminded her of the Kennedys that she had known, JFK and RFK. She was an older woman, and she liked what the Kennedys have done for America, and she wanted more of that. Yeah, that's so, a, I, that is a great point. The RFK legacy, I mean, so the, the Kennedy legacy uh, of the civil rights movement and and all of the goodwill with older African-American voters, I think that has, that's going to have some impact. Well, that's a great point. I hadn't even thought about that until just now when you mentioned it. But that will have impact. Yeah, and in ways that are almost impossible to foresee. Right, right. So, so talk to me a little bit about, I, I know you mentioned, uh, or you had, a, you know, this was, what, this was about a, a few weeks after Hamas invaded uh, Israel. And tell us a little bit about what your focus group was thinking about that. And then maybe we can then step back and and talk on a broader scale what we think, how we think this is going to play out from, well, just from a policy standpoint, but also politically. So the groups were done exactly a month after the attack. November 7th were the groups. And... The responses were in broad stroke as follows. None of the people thought Hamas was justified in attacking Israel. None. Well, that's, cool. uh, that's encouraging. Uh, uh, that, was, that was encouraging, <laughs> yes. Um, and about half of them were thought that Israel was correct in going after Hamas in response the way that they were. Okay. So there, there wasn't like there were... Generally speaking, most of the respondents were supportive of Israel and were, I guess, on the side of Israel. Uh, but there was a real mix of opinion about whether Israel was going overboard in its response. And I had a number of responses who just thought that their their military actions in Gaza were indiscriminate and they were not happy with the way Israel was carrying it out. They were they were they were. It was less about the justifiability of responding 
as opposed to the way they were responding. Right. So they were they, they just they, they thought they were fully justified in responding. It was how they were doing it. That's where the question came in. From a political perspective, I asked them whether they approved or disapproved of the way Biden was handling the situation. So I had three who said that they approved. Now, that doesn't mean that eight disapproved. I had eight who are still standing on the sidelines, not sure whether they approve or disapprove. Right, right. So I had no active disapprovals. No one said to me, I don't like what he is doing as president in this situation. But I had, I'm not sure what he's doing. Um, I'm waiting to see whether how it works out. I'm not aware of whether he's doing that much. I had one person who said, I'm not really sure that he is responding at all. I think it's <laughs> other countries that are doing more than we're doing. So... There's a real mix, a hodgepodge of sort of reactions to Biden. Uh, but importantly, none of the 11 thought Trump would be doing a better job. Interesting. And there were real concerns this month. And I asked the same question a few days after the invasion on October 11th uh, with swing voters in, in Georgia. And none of those people thought Trump would be doing a better job. Interesting. So, okay. yeah. So it's, but this is what's so interesting, right? Which is that you would think that this would accrue to Biden's benefit if they think Trump would do a worse job. But the Biden people are not standing up and saying, we're doing a better job than Trump on this issue, I guess, for whatever geopolitical reasons, they don't want to over-politicize this at this point. Um, but there were huge doubts about Trump's ability to manage a crisis like this. Um, the doubts about Biden were just, again, not so sure what exactly he is doing. Right. Right. That's interesting. It's well, it is encouraging because it's been one of the things that's been so disheartening for me. And we've talked about it on previous episodes of this is how many Americans and people who are here who probably are not Americans, but on visas or whatever, that have just taken up the pro-Palestinian anti-Israel. And when I say pro-Palestinian, I mean pro-Hamas an anti-Israel position. It is astounding. It is astounding to me that we have this kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric that is literally being shouted from bullhorns. Um, and it, it, I mean, it, 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 and at the same time, we have media calling <laughs> Trump a Nazi <laughs> for saying something about vermin, talking about socialists and communists. It's like, wait a minute. We have actual Nazis that are out there, you know, death to Jews. And, oh, no, they're just, you know, expressing their free speech. But this guy, he's really bad. I mean, it just, I have, I think this is an inflection point in our country. I don't know where it goes. Um, and I think that to Biden's credit, he's been pretty good. His first speech coming out of this was strong. Um, I'd worry that, that the administration has got so many anti-Israel elements within it, the State Department and others, that, that the pressure is going to, to be so much that, it, that there's going to be a change. I mean, we saw what Obama said, which was just outrageous in my mind, juxtaposed with what Hillary said on The View and other places, which was awesome in my mind. I don't know. Do you have any reaction to that? Yeah, I mean— the thing to be aware of when it comes to the swing voters in particular is that they're not paying hyper, hyper attention yeah. to everything that everybody's saying. In fact, half of them told me that they're not paying close attention to the war between Hamas and Israel. Right. So, again, what matters to us, Sean, what we pay attention to every day, this is 
We're weird. Only it's yeah. We're, we're exactly. We're weird. We're wonkish, and and we pay very close attention. Um, and it's not as though this doesn't matter to people. I should tell you the other thing, which was the most astounding finding. So I asked on October 11th with the Georgia voters whether anyone was concerned about this war leading to World War Three, and not a single one said yes. This month with Arizona, ten of the eleven said they were concerned this could lead to World oh, War wow. III. Wow. So you had another four weeks elapse between the focus groups, and all of a sudden the, the concern about how this can escalate and spin out of control was definitely on people's minds. Interesting. So that, was a, that to me, was really eye-opening. You know, usually you know, I, I have to keep a f- poker face in these groups and, I, and be careful, and I, I don't know what my face looked like when <laughs> I got that reaction, but I was really surprised that that it had switched that much in the course of a month. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, of course, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and I am trying to ask these questions as neutrally as I possibly can. And I had an interesting exchange with some of these respondents about anti-Semitism. Um, and there's a real concern because I asked about college campuses to sort of your point about this stuff. And the thing I uncovered was that there's a real fight in people's minds between the 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 concerns about certain groups being attacked and people's free speech rights. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these folks don't know exactly where to draw the line. And they don't look at things consistently from one group to the next or right. from one situation to the next. So there's a real, it, 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 it's, a, it's a real dangerous place for a politician to be. And yeah. uh, for one who is trying to deal with these particular swing voters, I mean, your base, obviously, if you, if you know what your base is, your base is your base. Right. And, um, and one would argue that Biden has not helped himself with his base at all by taking the staunch position uh, for Israel that he has. Um, well, and- I, that's a that's a good point. But I also one of the things that I'm waiting to, to see, because I know it's going to happen because it's already in the there's already make markings of it. Is it, There's some on the right who are sounding a lot like some on the hard left uh, when it comes to this. And I think we're going to see. Some of that as funding bills come through Congress and who's, you know, attacking who on who's funding, you know, who's who supports funding for Israel. I mean, we already have a very anti-Ukraine caucus within the Republican base. Uh, and I feel like some of that's going to bleed and and become anti-Israel. And that that worries me uh, because then. <laughs> We've got we, we've talked about the you know, I've talked about the, the spectrum on the political spectrum isn't a line. It's a circle. And so hard left meets hard right at the bottom. And here we are. Yeah, that, that's we've, we've seen it. We're seeing it. Um, and that the the challenge is making sure there's a sizable zone of tolerance in our public discourse for multiple viewpoints and for, I would argue, uh, being helpful to allies. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's, but again, I, I understand the mindset of the extremes because I talk to people, I focus group them, not in the swing voter groups because they're four square right in the, as close to the middle as you can get. Right. But you talk to people on the left and it's that it, for a lot of them, I mean, part of it, I imagine, on the left and the right is just plain anti-Semitism. I wouldn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but there's also a very strong, at least on the right, put America first concern. And yeah. any dollar that's spent outside the United States is a dollar that could have been spent in the United States. And that's 
And that's a mistake. And that's a longstanding point of view in American politics on the right. It's an isolationist wing that has always been around, at yeah. least in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, you know, go back to Pat Buchanan and isolationist and you know, uh, Charles Lindbergh. I mean, it, it's right. It's go all the way back to yeah, World War pre World War Two, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so again, when we were engaged internationally during the Cold War, Republicans tended to be aligned. But since the Cold War is over, there's been a fracturing, and that's part of what we're seeing right now. Um, and that's what makes this hard. I, I think most Americans overall are supportive of helping our allies overseas, but it's hard to get a funding bill through Congress when there's a sizable portion of one party that is lukewarm to actively opposed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, <laughs> and as we've seen, uh, a new speaker did not necessarily change the way things happen in Congress. <laughs> no, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, Pete, Pete, our friend Pete Townsend had it right, right? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Exactly. We talked about that in our last episode. Uh, Rich, anything else that's that jumped out at you? I mean, this is your stuff is always incredibly fascinating and really important. I, I, I can't emphasize enough how important the work that you do is for those of us who pay attention to politics because what what you're doing informs anybody who's watching what to be on the lookout for as we head into this next year. Yeah, well, I, I should, to the point about our new speaker, I put up an unidentified photo of him and almost nobody recognized him. So, um, and because again, they're just not paying close attention. That's not right. a criticism of him as a person. I see this all the time. Right. So the one thing I wanted to bring up, which is Arizona specific, given where you are, is when I asked about your upcoming Senate race. Oh, yes. I forgot about that. Yeah. How could I forget? <laughs> yeah. So I imagine we both get off of this and we're like, wait a second, why didn't we talk about Arizona? So. Uh, so I asked about the cinema versus Gallego versus uh, Lake. And so in a three-way race, eight would take cinema, two would take Gallego, and one can't make up, I think it's a his mind, between Gallego and cinema. There were okay. none who would take Lake. No Lake. Interesting. And then in a Gallego-Lake race without cinema, assuming she doesn't run for whatever reason, it was 10 for Gallego and one for Lake. Wow. wow. Um, and, and I don't want to pile on Lake uh, because it's not about me personally, but I will tell you that they use words like chaos, crazy, and loose cannon to describe her. Interesting. Um, she's going to have a very, very hard time with these swing voters. That is fascinating. Well, that tell, what it tells me is that Gallego has not yet been defined as the leftist that he is. Uh, and... So she, because she has defined herself so viscerally from the last campaign and since, uh, that, that presents a real challenge. Boy, to, it also shows that there is, I still think that there's a lane for cinema. I might be in a small cohort. <laughs> but, um, you know, because I, I think that most people would say, well, it's just there's, there's no mathematical way for cinema to get there. But... I think it's possible that she could she could go up the middle, um, and you know clearly with swing voters she's she's got a, a huge advantage, um, and that matters. Now is that enough? If she's going to have peel, peel you know Democrats and Republicans uh, on either side, but um, what that tells me is that Lake really really needs cinema to be in this race, 
to have a shot, right? Yeah, to, to, to split your opponents, yes, ostensibly, <laughs> assuming that that cinema draws more votes from the left than she does from the right, um, which at this point is a testable proposition, or yeah. it, you know, it's a questionable proposition, I should right, say, right. Uh, because she's really done her job to alienate herself from a lot of Democrats and to embrace certain Republicans. So, you know, who knows how it's going to play out? Uh, it, I imagine it could be a very close to even three-way race with a very, very narrow margin going to the victor. Yeah, that's a great point that this isn't going to, no one's going to win in a landslide. That's for sure. This one's going to be 34, 33, 33. I mean, it's a crazy, super tight race. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's probably, if it ends up being the three way that I, I could very well see it being literally down to the wire and everyone's at the low 30s. Yeah. It's just astounding. Then, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But the other thing to think about also is that if she runs, if cinema runs, and obviously is running in the middle, she's going to be attacked from both sides. And she, and that's an interesting position to be in because you, that could be an endless source of grief for her if she doesn't manage it well, or it could be an endless source of pride. I must be doing something wrong if both sides are attacking me type of thing. Right. And I, I don't work on campaigns. I'm not working. I'm not helping anybody one way or the other. But I would love to be in the room during focus groups for cinema where they're trying to figure out that strategy. How do you get to one third plus one in order to win this election in Arizona? Right. Dealing with people attacking from both left and right. And how do you and the other question is, how do you marginalize from a strategic perspective Lake and Gallego to the point where people go, oh, that person, he's too liberal and she's too conservative she's been doing a perfectly fine job as my senator yeah sure i'll give her another six years yeah yeah it's it's a really interesting strategy that she has to employ and uh yeah because generally she's a sunny upbeat positive person brightly dressed you know i think she's not the kind of person who's a shrinking violet who can't define herself right she spent a huge amount of time and effort and capital defining herself i'd just be curious to see how she defines herself against a, a opponents from both sides of the spectrum. Well, and it, That's a- I mean, in, in thinking about how she's defined herself with the sunny disposition and the willingness to work across the aisle and to be a problem solver. And I, I actually think that she's done herself a lot of good that if she leans in on that persona of who she is, cause it is who she is, then it probably does her well. Um, whereas Lake is going to have to shift Gallego's going to have to shift. I mean, they're, you know, they have, Lake is very defined. Gallego's undefined. Gallego's very liberal. So he, he's going to have to shift to the middle a little bit to avoid being tagged so liberal. I don't know what Lake can do to try to shift to the middle a little bit. Um, but as a result, both Gallego and Lake are going to have to be more negative and that's going to allow, I think, cinema to stay absolutely positive, which yeah, may it. may work. I mean, you and I both know negativity works in politics, but sometimes, I mean, this is in in some ways, this is just a. I mean, every student of politics should be watching this race with a fine tooth, you know, with a microscope, because we've never seen this kind of opportunity to study what a true three way race would look like in this regard. I mean, at least here in Arizona, we haven't had this opportunity. 
Yeah, for Arizona. I mean, uh, you remember, you know, Joe Lieberman had a similar situation in Connecticut when he decided he was going right. to be an ind- independent Democrat. He managed to win that race. So, and then I'm trying to remember whether Lisa Murkowski and her race in Alaska, she ran as a third party, right? Because there was a Republican yes, and a Democrat. Right. And she, people had to write in her name with a pen. Yeah. And she managed and she to pull won. that off in right. Alaska. <laughs> so so there, there, are, there are ways. And, and I honestly, in, in thinking about this a little bit more with you, incumbency, I think, is a huge asset for her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't know what her positives and negatives are in Arizona. Maybe you'd have that off the top of your head. She's upside down. I, they're all upside, upside down. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the question is, how upside down is she relative to Gallego and Lake? Right. Um, and if she's less upside down, that means she's right side up, at least in terms of election outcomes. So, um, yeah, I'm very curious to see how she, how she manages that that race. That's going to make a huge difference. And obviously it can make a huge difference in the outcome of the, the Senate and who's ultimately going to be in charge of it. Come, right. Uh, 2025. Yeah, because with Manchin retiring, I mean, we're essentially going to almost a guaranteed 50-50 at minimum. Uh, and then if Ohio or Montana go Republicans way, then Republicans have it. If, you know, if they don't, it depends on the presidential election, you know, what happens here. So there's it's all it's now. It's now a true jump ball, a yeah. true jump ball. So. Yeah, same, same for the house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to be right. very close on the house. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're uh, tell you the house is not doing themselves many favors. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's and and we're not done. I mean, we right. are. You're going to have this mess in January coming down the pike, and and you're going to have a lot of very unhappy people who are going to say there's you know, great piece about it. I know how many of your listeners read the Washington Post for a variety of reasons. Maybe they don't, but uh, there's a great lead story uh, in uh, the the Tuesday uh, edition asking the question, what are conservatives getting for all the uh, tumult that they're imposing on themselves? You know, if you're, if you're getting a a policy end that you're excited about and there's some pot at the end of the rainbow, that's great. But if it's tumult and all you're getting is no legislative action that you can go home and vote for uh, or take credit for, I should say, then that's a real problem. Yeah. And, and I, I, and I think it's been a real curse for them to have such a narrow majority. Um, they're not managing it in a way that you would expect Republicans to. You know, you, Sean, you know the old line, you know, de- Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Right. And, and we're seeing the exact opposite. opposite. Republicans Complete aren't falling, falling in line anywhere. Anywhere. Uh, no. So it's, it's really amazing to watch. I mean, obviously, for the sake of the country, I hope they, they're able to figure it out. Yeah, same. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. I don't have a lot of hope right now because until they do something to punish Matt Gates and the others, I just don't see how this resolves itself because there has to be some consequence. And so far, there have been no consequences other than we're getting the same O, same O. You know? Yeah. Well, but again, the, to me, this gets to a much larger question about why people run for Congress in the first place. And if you see having a House seat or even a Senate seat as a stepping stone to having a large number of social media followers and maybe a high paying TV show on a conservative network, or I guess on the left on a liberal network. Um, and that's your goal in being there. And it's not to serve a constituency of 700,000 people in your house district. Then you're going to get the outcomes that you get. Yeah. That's a great point. And, yeah. And so it's, for me, it's, it, I can't imagine running for office and putting myself out there as a candidate 
unless my goal was to help the people in my district. Exactly. And it, 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 we've lost all, I mean, there, there are a handful of people who being an elected member of the house is not what they're there for. And that's just really a sad commentary on who they are because they're frauds. That's not why you're there. You shouldn't be there. Just yeah. bottom line. It reminds me of my business analogy. I just went to a, a big trade show in California. I was walking around the floor and I thought, you know, this would be a great place to try to sell to the people who have booths on the floor. But that would be the exact wrong reason to be at a trade show, right? <laughs> you know, you usually go there to hear, elect, you know, hear presentations and to be sold stuff. To go there to sell to the people working on the floor is completely preposterous. Yeah. But that's kind of like the business equivalent of people going to Congress in order to sell some other thing that they do that has very little to do with legislating, legislating and everything to do with promoting their own agenda. Yeah. And, and the sort of perversion of it, it just, I mean, it gnaws at me. I, I absolutely drives me bonkers yeah. uh, because it's, it, 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 people used to complain when we were kids, you know, people were running for office in order to see it as a stepping stone to higher office. That almost looks quaint by today's standards. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I wish that's why they were doing it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, at least you want to establish a legislative record so right. that when you run for higher office, you can say, well, I achieved this, this, and this. Exactly. Now they're there to stand up to say, I poked my finger in the eye of the speaker of the house in order to get you my audience of social media followers riled up so you'd give me more money or do whatever else to make me yep. more famous yep and how how do you manage for that i mean think about someone like lbj who is like you know the legislative master who's able to get everybody to bend to his will what the hell would matt gates say to lbj if lbj were around today say working in serving in the houses in leadership and what would LBJ be saying back to him? I mean, I, honestly, in, in a world without incentives, legislative incentives that that are enforceable, you, you have utter chaos. Yeah, you cannot run it. You cannot run an institution that way as a leadership uh, in a leadership position in the House or the Senate. It's impossible. Right. And and here and here we are. That's what we have. And here utter we are. Chaos. So, well, we may have utter chaos in the House and the Senate, but we're happy that we don't. We can cut through the chaos with you and your wisdom, and we appreciate it. And we'll, we'll have you back again, probably sooner rather than later. But we appreciate your time, Rich. Well, it's been an honor to be on. We'll probably do, be doing groups in Arizona again next year. I'll certainly let you know. And uh, I hope your colleague Chris is feeling better. Good. Well, we, uh, we appreciate it. Where, where can people find your stuff? Thank you. So uh, all the videos from all our focus groups are on our website for free, no charge, fully accessible at swingvoterproject.com. Awesome. That's swingvoterproject.com. Great. Well, I encourage our viewers, listeners to go watch that. Again, thanks a bunch, Rich. You have a great one. Have Thank a happy you, Thanksgiving. Too, All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Take care.